We're talking about the miracle of Jesus Christ right here in this Christmas season. And I want to talk a little bit about traditions. I love some of the traditions. Think about it for a second. What are some of the traditions uh, that you've grown up with? Maybe you had traditions as a child. Uh, maybe you've brought them all, and now your children have the same tradition. So, someone got one? Who's got a tradition? An idea. Don't be shy. Josh, you got one in the back. What, what, what's one of the traditions you grew up with? One tree, one tree, that's it. Okay, I don't know what that means. Instead of multiple trees all over? Okay, all right, one tree, that's it. That's all you get. I think we have that tradition too then. I didn't realize that was one. All right, uh, Bryce, tradition. Uh, we watch the Christmas story on Luke Awesome, that's amazing, that's amazing. Yes? Oh, you make a cake? That's Awesome. Okay. Anybody put stockings up for their pets? Uh, uh, that happens at our place. You had one more, Ariel? Okay, like Christmas Eve. That's something we've done too. That's awesome. So, so one of my favorites is on Christmas Eve every year, and this started for me, it, it started on Christmas in 1994, the first time I ever met Jennifer's family. We've been dating for about nine months, and I went to Baton Rouge with her for Christmas to meet her family, and I just fell in love with her family. And her mom, their, their, their tradition was Christmas Eve, they always made white bean chili with jalapeno cornbread. Oh my God in heaven. And And, and and then the tamales, right? I had to have tamales with it, and it was just incredible. It was such a fun uh, thing. We've done that every single year since then. We always do the white bean chili, whatever. But it was also such a momentous thing because that was the weekend that I remember knowing that I knew that I knew that I was in love with Jennifer, and she was the most beautiful person in the whole universe. So it's very special to me. But we also had this tradition on Christmas morning that we make those orange cinnamon rolls, right? The, or, the cinnamon rolls that have the orange uh, uh, glaze over the top. Oh my God in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be. Get, I'll get you praying in tongues right there, right? I, I mean, so we, we all have these different traditions. We have these different things. But I remember being a kid and, and having the tradition my parents would bring out the nativity set. Do you remember the nativity sets? And, and we had like a big one, right? And it, it was like this shack, Kind of like a like a like a little wooden shed, and it had all the, the hay in it, and whatever, and the sheep, and in the little wooden manger. I think we got a little wooden manger over here in the corner. Was in there, and little baby Jesus was in his little uh, swaddle clothes or whatever inside of the manger. And we don't know what swaddle. We think it's blankets or whatever. I've actually learned a lot of wild stuff in my research this week. I may get into that at a little uh, later date. What that was all about. But, but this whole concept of, of we see like the, the angel is there, right? And the star is there, that, you know, whatever. And the, uh, they've got the magi or the wise men are there and all this kind of stuff. But as you go and actually research the story and actually look into it, because the more you look into it, the more you realize that some of the traditions that we have aren't actually fully biblically accurate. It, it, you know, some of us, the idea we have of nativity comes from a Christmas card. The Hallmark family showed us what nativity looks like, right? But we don't know if they read the Bible or not. But there are certain things that are part of the story that the traditions are actually a little different than the truth. So what do you do when you've got a tradition and then you learn the truth? You don't want to just throw it all out 
because there's value in it, but this, the, the key is for each and every one of us to continue our search to perpetually uh, pursue more knowledge, more understanding, and adding to that. And so this is something I do every single year. I love this season. I completely nerd out. You're going to see my full nerd today. Uh, I am a Bible nerd. I try real hard to to pretend like I'm cool, but I secretly just, I love digging and studying and, and researching Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all these different cultures that came together to present this, this truth of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people get hung up because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, but the reality is, is that he wasn't actually born on December 25th. He was born more likely in the late spring but the December 25th has a very specific and important meaning, and we're going to dive into that today as we dig in a little bit. And I want to talk specifically about these wise men, these magi. Who were they? Who were these guys? And, and we, we see them in the nativity as if they were there at Jesus's birth, as if they were there in Bethlehem. But that's not necessarily the case. And the more I've researched and the more I've studied, uh, the more I've come to realize that the Magi likely did not show up until Jesus was about 18 months old or so. It was a different time frame. They weren't there on his actual birthday. And what's also interesting is we've been to Israel. And when you're in Israel, they show you what the actual uh, stable would have looked like. It's not a shed. It's a cave. That was underneath, it's, it, it's, Israel is a rocky, hilly, and they would have these little cave uh, enclaves inside uh, underneath the buildings. And so the inn that was full, the hotel that was full, behind it and underneath it, there was like a cave that the shepherds, what they would do is they would bring all of their sheep into the cave and they would block it off outside so the predators couldn't get to them. And they would actually have the sheep turn around and face inward and, and they would have them, and that way their hot breath would warm the cave. It's interesting, the different things that they would do. But even the manger wasn't made out of wood. When we were there, we saw how they would carve out little clefts inside of these caves where they would put with hay and they would put the baby lambs in or whatever. And it was actually a stone manger, not a wooden manger. Interesting to see all these little differences of details. And again, we don't just because we're used to a traditional image of a shed with a little wooden trough or whatever, doesn't mean you throw all that out, but it's interesting to learn and to grow yourself to realize the actual truth of the story, and there's so much power in it. So let's talk about these magi. Who were these men? We used to sing growing up, we three kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. I don't think that's how this song actually goes, but, but we would, that's how we would sing it, right, goofing off. Uh, but they weren't actually kings, they, they, they did have a royal connection, but they weren't actually kings. That's not who they were. The word magi is actually where we get our modern word magic from. And as you begin to understand the culture, these magi were a group of people that were the spiritual and scientific advisors to the kings all throughout history. Whenever Moses went to Egypt to uh, command Pharaoh to let my people go. And he had the, the different uh, tricks that he would do, so to speak. He threw his staff down. It turned into a snake. The king called for his magi. And the magi replicated that, that stunt of turning a stick into a snake. Picking it back up, it turns back into a staff. The same thing. Moses put his hand in. 
uh, pulls it out. It has leprosy, puts it back in, pulls it out, and it didn't have leprosy. The magi were able to replicate that same thing. When they turned water to blood in the Nile, the magi were able. There were certain things the magi, through whoever, whatever they knew, their connection to magic, were able to do some of these magical stunts. But as the plagues progressed, the magi were shown to be overpowered and overwhelmed by the power of the Most High God. But that's not the last time we see the Magi. We see these same Magi later on in Scripture when Israel is taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Magi are there as well. And Daniel was uh, there in his defeating the lions in the lion's den and also his friends Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego coming out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar actually made Daniel the chief of all the magi. He was the head magi. Well, that's weird because we think of magi as being magicians or sorcerers, but they were scientists and they were powerful, powerful people we'll learn in scripture. And I wanna take you to this verse so you can see uh, this specific passage, and then we'll dive into more of this from there. Matthew chapter two, verse one says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, there is some confusion in this passage because Matthew he goes straight from the birth of Jesus and he doesn't create the timeline and he goes right to the Magi showing up. He, he leaves a gap there and just kind of puts two stories together. You're gonna see in just a few minutes that Luke who is seen as being the greatest historian. Luke was actually, most of the books of the Bible, many of, of the books in the New Testament, the Gospels were written by fishermen or by different disciples. Uh, you, you have some books that were written by actual scholars. All of the epistles of Paul, those were written by scholars. Paul was a very highly educated individual. The book of Luke, Luke was a medical doctor and a historian, a highly educated individual. He was not a common fisherman or a businessman or whatever. He was an actual uh, doctor, and so he was highly educated, and he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Those two books in your New Testament are seen by modern-day literary scholars as being the two most accurate ancient manuscripts of the entire New Testament. The way that he wrote them are so accurate and so historical. Uh, it's really a beautiful thing and to, to recognize the power of Scripture in that way. But Luke gives us a different timeline. We'll see that in just a moment. We're going to answer a bunch of questions here. So these magi show up. They said, we saw a star. His star rose in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why would they be disturbed if what we see in our nativity scene is three random dudes with turbans holding little bitty boxes and a camel next to them? If that's what actually happened, why is Herod disturbed and why is all of Jerusalem disturbed with him? We're going to answer that question. When he called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judah replied. In Bethlehem and Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly to a meeting and found out from them the exact 
exact time the star had appeared. Why does he want to know the exact time? Well, the scripture goes on to say that he was trying to discern how old this child would be by this point because he wanted to try to kill that child. Herod was horrifically paranoid. He was an illegitimate king. He wasn't even a Jew. He was put in power by Caesar of Rome, and he had previous experiences with the Magi that I'll share with you in just a moment. So he's got history with these dudes, and he's a little upset about what's going on in his current time frame. So he's trying to find out how old is this child? When did the star appear? And then it says he sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But secretly, he was just trying to find the baby to kill him, the scriptures tell us. When they saw, I said, uh, I'm sorry, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now notice, King Herod told them he's in Bethlehem, go to Bethlehem. It nowhere in this passage or anywhere in the Bible says that the Magi actually went to Bethlehem. What it says is they followed a star. They heard the king, and then they followed a star that appeared to them again, and it literally took them exactly to the place where the baby, or pardon me, in this passage it uses the word child. It does not use the word baby. The Greek words here used twice are the word for a toddler, is the word used, a toddler. So it says, after they heard the king and they saw the star, they went ahead of them and it stopped at the place where the child or the toddler was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Who were these magi? They were not kings, but let me tell you something. They were king makers. There is an Alexandrian, an Egyptian philosopher whose name is Philo. Philo was born 10 years after Jesus, so he was alive on the planet when Jesus was alive. He was from Alexandria, Egypt, which was at that time part of the Persian Empire. There were two ruling empires on the planet at that time in this specific region. The Persian Empire, which encapsulated all of Egypt too. Egypt, after this is interesting, Egypt had fallen after Moses. It was the world power at the time. But the entire army of Pharaoh and all, I mean, all, the entire government of Pharaoh was destroyed in the Nile River whenever uh, Moses crossed with the people of Israel and it collapsed and it collapsed on top of them, kills their entire governmental system. Egypt has never been a world power since. Pretty amazing. Never been a world power since God destroyed them in that season. And the, the, the Medians or the, the Medes and the Persians begin to take over that region. And the Persian emperor was then the king or the pharaoh of Egypt as well. It was one main major empire. The Greeks had an empire. The Romans had an empire. And at the time of Jesus, you have the Romans and you have the Persians and they had their own conflicts. What I learned in my research, and again, I told you I'm going to geek out and I'm going to give you a whole lot of information. You're going to want to probably listen to this message two or three times 
times to, to get the notes and to get the information because there's just a lot and I can't help myself. I'm a Bible nerd, I already told you, and I just, I just can't help myself. So I'm gonna share lots of knowledge with you today that I've learned as I study. Uh, and, I've, and anyway, I'm just, I'm just a little pumped, okay? I'm a little excited about it, all right? Can't help myself. So in 39 BC, according to the historians, the Magi actually went to Israel. Uh, they were there, and they were so powerful, and so, uh, so, so much, they had so much influence that Herod actually had to abdicate his throne and flee to Rome. And Caesar in Rome had to negotiate with the uh, empire or, or the, with, with the, the emperor of Persia in order to con- maintain that territory and allow Herod to come back and take his throne again. So when the Magi show up again, Herod has already been run out of town with them by them once earlier in his reign. So now he's an old man. He's super paranoid. He's already killed his wife because he thought she wanted the throne. He killed his firstborn son because he thought that, she, that he wanted the throne. Every time Herod gets nervous, he starts killing folk. And that's why all of the nation was distressed because Herod's distressed. And when Herod gets upset, he kills people. So they're not happy. On top of that, what I learned is that it wasn't three. It could have been up into the hundreds of magi. This is a, an entire company of, of these scholars, these, this body of the highest educated. These people were almost like the original Illuminati. They were the power behind the power. They were the money behind the money. They, they, were, the, they were the kingmakers that put people into power. And if they decided you weren't going to be on the throne, you weren't on the throne anymore. That's how powerful these people were. On top of that, they had their own army. They had, the, the, the Magi had their own army. When they traveled, they traveled with an army, not three dudes on camels with tiny little presents. An army. Not only that, but they had, and, and I'm going to share with you again, this, this historian, Philo, he said that whenever they would pay tribute, and again, he's alive at the time, he said in the Persian culture, if they were going to pay tribute to a low-level king, the amount of gold that they would give to a low-level king was 110 kilos of gold. 110 kilos. Y'all, that's 250 pounds of gold. An ounce of gold is about $2,000. We're talking about 250 pounds. Just the gold in our modern day would be valued at about $6 million. Just the gold. That's to a low-level king. These magi have followed what they believe to be the king of the world. Not a low-level king, a high-level king. The higher the power of the king, the more vast the gifts that they would give. They brought frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh were both spiritual gifts and kingly gifts. They were used inside of worship in the temple. They were used inside of funerals. Myrrh was used to treat the body for death. Frankincense and myrrh both had the exact same dollar amount, pound for pound, that gold did. Just the gold and the silver, pardon me, the gold and the uh, frankincense and myrrh, if it was a low-level king, would have been worth about 17 or 18 million dollars. That's a low-level king. These magi, had, they had read the scriptures. They had been trained by Daniel. So Daniel became the chief of the magi. 
He trained the Magi under Nebuchadnezzar. He trained the Magi under the next Babylonian king. I forgot his name is a weird name that starts with a B. And then the Persians came in and took over Babylon. And you've probably heard of, the, of uh, Cyrus, who was the uh, Persian king. Cyrus was the emperor of Persia. His title was king of kings and lord of lords. And he was also the pharaoh of Egypt. He then had a son named Darius. Uh, Darius uh, was also one that uh, Daniel was a chief magi for. And then you have Darius's son, his name's Xerxes. You've heard of Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, that was Xerxes in the movie 300. And then the next king, Xerxes' son, king of, of, of uh, Persia, the emperor of Persia, the king of kings, was named Antaxerxes. And Antaxerxes was the, was the uh, pharaoh of Egypt, the, the actual king of all of Persia, the emperor there as well. And Nehemiah was his cupbearer. So Nehemiah was the one that brought his glass of wine, was the one that brought his food to him, served in the presence of the great-grandson of Cyrus, the grandson of Darius, who Daniel had served as the chief magi, and all of these magi had been trained in all of the prophecies of the Messiah, and Daniel himself had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 the exact date that the Messiah will be crowned king. He said, and it's called the, the, um, it's called the prophecy of 70 weeks, but it's actually seven years times 69 years. It's 483 years. And that date started on the day, it says, that the walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Well, that was when Nehemiah left the presence of Antaxerxes under the authority of the king of Persia to go rebuild. And when Nehemiah began rebuilding the wall, the clock started ticking that these magi had been watching for a century at that point, 483 years. Do you know what the date of 483 years from when Nehemiah started goes uh, through till? It goes through till the single, the actual day that we celebrate Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is the anniversary of the prophecy starting 483 days. The day that they made Jesus, they, they declared him to be the Messiah, the son of David, the king of the world is to the day, the day that was prophesied by Daniel. And the Magi had been watching for this for hundreds of years. They would have known already that the king, it's getting close. The time is getting close, 483 years since Jerusalem's walls were being, beginning to be rebuilt, and they're knowing that the time is getting close, and then all of a sudden, stuff starts happening in the sky. What did they see in the sky? Oh, this is where it gets really, really geeked out for me, because I love astronomy. I've studied this kind of stuff my whole life, man. I had a telescope growing up, and I love this stuff. So now, you understand, with modern-day science, we can map all the history in the sky. You understand that? We can literally like rewind the, plan the whole laws of planetary motion and stuff that we understand to be the laws of the universe. You can rewind them through computers and you can see what the sky looked like at any given point in history, like a clock. It's amazing. And I want to show you a couple of illustrations. Show me the, the one that's second in my notes first, the one that's a little darker. This right here, this is what the sky looked like in BC, year three of BC, in the spring, this is uh, Jupiter, which is the king planet, okay? So these astronomers who have studied the sky, they read the sky, all the constellations have a different story, they have a different meaning. Amazing that Jesus, the Bible de declares that the stars and the planets are for signs. 
Isn't that interesting? God created, when he put every single star in place and stars are fixed, they do not move. Every single star that's in place is for a sign. The stars speak a message. And these magi understood how to read the stars and the motions of the planets. And so we have this constellation, Leo, which is the king constellation. It's the royal constellation. And In this specific season, Regulus is the king star. And you see this little line where it's going back and forth, back and forth. Regulus was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it's it's about how the planetary motion or the rotation of our planet, but in the sky, it looked like it was doing this. So it was alerting them to pay attention. And then you see Venus and Jupiter actually came together and they descended down with their, with their rotation and they rested together. All three of those formed together. And what the Magi would have seen is one, gigantic star phenomenon where the king planet Jupiter and the queen planet Venus come together and have a king baby and they all unite together inside of the royal uh, constellation. This is what they saw in 3 BC. Now flash forward to the fall uh, of BC and, and this is what transitioned throughout the year. Now you have Virgo rises up underneath. This is out of Revelation. And they appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed by, with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. 12 is the number of government. And you see again, here's Jupiter and Regulus up high. Now Venus has traveled down with Mercury. You see the sun clothing in Virgo and the moon under her feet. This is all what they would have seen inside of that specific year. So they come to Herod and they say, we saw his star, we know that the king is born. Now, interestingly enough, you see a passage in scripture. This is actually out of Numbers 24, verse 17. It says, a star, and this is another prophecy that they would have known, a star shall come forth out of Jacob, and now a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So they've connected a star and a scepter, the star representing this son or this child of God, and the scepter representing the power of a king. This is all part of the messianic prophecies that would have come together in this time. So these magi are watching this. They're looking for this. And what's really wild is the timeline of this, of when they would have actually arrived because they lived about three months journey away. If you traveled every single day, all through the day, all of that, they would have made it there in about three months. But scholars believe they showed up around 18 months later And in fact, what's really interesting is, as I read you in the passage earlier, that they said they saw the star again, and they were really excited. Well, when they saw the star again, what they saw the next time was they saw specifically the planet Jupiter aligned in the sky. This is in December. Actually, watch this. December 25th of 2 BC. Now Jesus is 18 months old, not a baby, a toddler. And if you rewind the sky, you see Jupiter, super bright, the brightest thing in the sky. This time, he's literally sitting inside of what would have been the abdomen of the the constellation Virgo. So you have the king inside of the virgin. 
is the picture they would have seen. And now they're so excited and they follow that where it leads. Now it's possible that there was some angelic interaction because there's angelic stuff all the way through. We understand that planets do move. They would call planets wandering stars uh, back in the day. But we also have the understanding that it could have been the light of the world. You understand that Jesus is the light of the world. You understand in scripture it says that in heaven there won't be any need for electricity, no need for fossil fuels anymore. It says that God will be the light. All light will emanate from God himself. He'll illuminate the entire city, the new, the new Jerusalem, the city of heaven. It's going to be amazing. We're going, y'all. You're going. We're going. You need to get excited about this. If we were talking about vacation, we were talking about Cancun, man, we'd be excited right about me. We're going to Cancun. Man, we're going to heaven, man. We're, this is temporary. You're on your work shift. We're about to go to paradise. Come, Jesus, come. Right? Get my glorified body chiseled, man. Forget this chubby stuff, chiseled. Here's what's wild. See, I, I, I'm not Jewish. I didn't grow up studying uh, uh, all of Judaism and their feasts and whatever. But we understand that there's a, a, a Jewish holiday that happens around the same time as our holiday Christmas. Jews don't celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. They celebrate Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? And why is it in December? Why is it at the same time that we celebrate Christmas? I've never understood that. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. It's also connected to in scripture. It's actually a holiday that started about 175 years before Jesus. So it's during the dark age of Israel when God had, after writing the book of Malachi, had gone silent on them for about 400 years. In the middle of that, they had a phenomenon. Uh, Jacob Maccabees was a historian and he records this inside of his books that they actually had gone, um, the people that had taken over the the, the temple of Jerusalem had vacated and they were actually able to go back in and rededicate the temple of Israel, the second dedication. And so in the middle of that, they found one jar of oil and the number one job of the priest was to keep the fire lit inside of the temple, inside of the holy place. The fire of God was supposed to stay lit 24 hours a day. You were never allowed to let the oil run out, to let the fire run out. And that's a beautiful picture of our responsibility as believers. It's your job to keep the fire of God lit in your life. You are the priest of your home. You're the priest of your life. You are in charge of the fire of God. If the fire of God goes out in your life, it's your fault. It's your responsibility. Tend your fire. Amen? So when they found this one jar of oil that was consecrated that they could use, it was enough oil to light the menorahs, to, to light the, fi the candles um, for one day. But the miracle occurred when they were trying to purify, purify more oil and it had to go through a process to be kosher, to be used inside of the temple. In the middle of that, it took them eight days and the flames never went out. So it was the miracle of lights during the dedication of the temple and it happened in the middle of December. So every year, Hanukkah, the celebration of lights or the dedication of the temple happens and it was something that happened in Jesus's day. So watch this. Jesus actually was in Jerusalem, John chapter 10. He's there for the Feast of Dedication. It's not one of the Jewish feasts that is in the, in the Bible. It's a traditional feast. It's a tradition, kind of like what we have at Christmas. So it's not one that God's commanded them to do. It's just a tradition that they celebrate the miracle of the oil that lit and dedicated the temple. Now, what's interesting is these magi showed up in Jerusalem during Hanukkah. They're there 
when all of Jerusalem is celebrating the dedication of the temple. They're celebrating Hanukkah. And all of a sudden, this light in the sky shines, and the Magi follow that light, not to Bethlehem. Can I show you? This is Luke chapter 2. I mentioned Luke is the greatest historian in the Bible. Luke 2 says, that, and that, so what you need to understand is they, they left, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They didn't live in Bethlehem. There was a census that required everyone to go to their family home, so they had to leave and go to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph was from. That was his family home. So they had to go by law there to be recorded in the census, and while they were there, Mary gives birth. And it was so packed and crowded that the, that the hotels were full. So that's how they ended up in the cave in the first place. But after that, they couldn't travel. Mary had just given birth. They didn't have all the modern medicine that we have. She'd just given birth. She can't travel. And by the way, on the eighth day, they have to circumcise him. So eight days he has to wait. But it's, third party, it's a 40-day purification process for Mary to be purified where she can actually go and they can travel again. And on the 40th day, Jesus is dedicated in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Now watch this. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, then they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child, the toddler, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The Magi never went to Bethlehem. The Magi went to Nazareth. Jesus was in Nazareth after 40 days. They went back to Nazareth. The Magi came 18 months or so later. And when they found him in Nazareth, they brought gifts for the king. The gifts that they brought for the king uh, would have been carried in these massive vault-like um, wagons, that would, you know, you, like a covered type uh, vaulted wagon with, surrounded by an army. It would have been cart after cart after cart, massive amount of weight. You're talking about a, a, huge, a huge amount of treasure. In, in fact, Philo, the same philosopher that I mentioned earlier, he mentions, uh, again, that the Persians, the way they would give these gifts, it would have been an entire catalog of gifts. It would have been Persian rubs, rugs, it would have been incense, it would have been furniture, it would have been tapestries, all kinds of gold um, um, uh, decor and different things for the house. So they show up in this little town of Nazareth with this massive amount of wealth that God used to provide for the entire life of Jesus. Interestingly, Mary's uncle was Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember that name? Joseph of Arimathea was one of the wealthiest men in Israel. And especially after this familial gift was given to the family of Jesus. The town four miles away was the banking center of Pontius Pilate working with Caesar had created a Middle Eastern banking center that was four miles away from, from um, Nazareth. And it was the banking center for all of the Middle East because Jerusalem, one of the reasons that it's so important, uh, the nation of Israel, is it literally sits in the crossroads of, the, of going from the Middle East to Africa. It is the highway to Africa. So all of the intercontinental trade came through Israel. That's why it's such a contested place on the, on the, on the planet even to this day. 
So what you see is you see a banking center where they could have actually handled the wealth because they were already handling all of the wealth and they were connected to the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, working with the Persian Empire and that's how they went to, uh, to Alexandria, Egypt whenever they left and Joseph couldn't work in Egypt. So all of Jesus' life was provided for by these magi that showed up with these massive gifts. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that says Jesus was poor. Do you know that? It's not in there. It says he became poor so that we might become rich. Do you know when he became poor? When he died on the cross. But he didn't, he, he, he died like a criminal, but he was buried in a wealthy man's tomb because he was a part of a family that had significant wealth connected to it. He ran a ministry that impacted the entire world and never received an offering. He had a full staff with a treasurer Never received an offering. Jesus had no lack because God saw fit that he would transfer every single cent that Jesus would need for his entire ministry into his life when he was a child. Interestingly enough, too, we don't have much record of, of, of Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old. We don't see Joseph anymore. We don't know if he was significantly older. We don't know if he passed away. But what we know is that Jesus was cared for and provided for his entire life because he's the son of God. In the same way that God will provide for his son, Jesus, he'll provide for you. You have no lack in your life. The only lack you have is the lack you have in your mind because you are the son of God. You are the daughter of the king. You have no lack. God will provide for you. It says they opened their treasures for him. That, that the passage, that, that word in the Greek would mean like literally vast treasure troves, vast treasures they opened to him. They were making him king of the world. They were dedicating Jesus, the toddler, as the king of the world, the king of all kings, the king of heaven. It's an incredible thing. I, I'm curious. Is Jesus the king of everything in your life? Is he the king of everything? See, see, I mean, if we're all honest, we have certain areas that we don't like to obey in. We got certain areas we feel really good about. Oh man, I'm really good. I'm a good Christian, right, like this. But then over here, maybe not so much. But, but what happens oftentimes is we get really, really good at following certain rules, so externally we look good. Christians can look externally good. But internally, we can have a lot of yuck in us. And what's sad is that we can look at people that on the outside, they still look sinful on the outside. Jesus said some people's sins go ahead of them and other people's sins trail behind them. You don't see them till later. But as Christians, we can look down on people that don't do as good following the rules and, the, and having outward uh, morality Yet we can still have all kinds of jealousy and gossip and, and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and stuff like that in our own hearts. And it's no different than the external sin. It's just you see one later, you see one sooner. Does that make sense? So each of us, we have to answer this question. Are we gonna make Jesus king of everything? These magi traveled across half a continent to make Jesus the king of everything. Maybe you need to make him king of everything. My big question for you today is what's he worth to you? What's Jesus worth to you? What's he worth? To the Magi, he was worth the most precious treasures possible. But here on earth, in our modern era, the number one thing that offends people more than anything else 
is if you talk about money in church. But we have an illustration. Guys, this whole Christmas season, where, do, where does giving gifts at Christmas season come from? It comes from the Magi. It comes from the Magi. And it wasn't gifts given to all these random people. It was gifts given to Jesus. That's why we have this tradition in our church of having a year-end offering at Christmas time that is us giving our best gift to Jesus. Now, this year, we've connected it into what we call our Go and Grow. Underneath every seat, there's one of these. This, this is just a little commitment card. It's something for you to pray through. Um, maybe you've been praying already with us over that we started talking about this back in October. Um, on this little sheet, it's got our Go and Grow card. There's a digital version of this. You can pick which, which ministries you're really passionate about. They're amazing ministries. See, the way our church works is, is we have, everyone gives their normal tithes and their offerings, and you give those just throughout the year as you give because you, as you have income. The Bible teaches us that as you have income, you give a tenth. Ten percent of your income belongs to God. It's a redemptive portion that belongs to God. And then on top of that, anytime, that's how we run the church. Uh, is through the tithe. And on top of that, we have our, our sacrificial giving or offerings. This go and grow vision is connected to the commandment of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples. Go and grow my kingdom is what Jesus commanded. And so we've got seven new ministries that we have vision to launch. We've got a ministry for special needs kids called the Champion Center. We've got a ministry for moms or, or single parents with a mom's day out that we want to do. Or it could be for married people too. That's for everybody. We want to open that up. We've got uh, ministries that want to launch for business people uh, right here to elevate the lives of business people in our city. We've got uh, all kinds of stuff that we need to do technologically inside of our building and things so we can better present the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got hundreds of, of missionaries that we are going to work with seven new countries that we can invade this year. And it all comes down to every single one of these projects, they'll cost a hundred grand, 150 grand. It sounds crazy. It sounds like a lot of money, but anybody own a home? Anybody own a car? I, I mean, this is the funny thing for me is as soon as you start talking about money in church, people get upset. They don't want to talk about money in church. But the problem is money's the number one topic in the Bible. Do you know that? More than any other topic, money's in the Bible. I would, I would encourage you to find one thing in your life that's valuable and meaningful that doesn't somehow have money connected to it. Oh, my kids. <laughs> you better believe there's money connected to that. Well, I just love with my, my wife. There's definitely money connected to that. I never needed money until I got married. You need money then. Your house, your education, your vocation, everything, guys, your hobbies, your bad habits, everything in your life is somehow connected to money. Somehow. So when we're talking about Jesus, when we're talking about the cause of Jesus Christ, the most important mission on the earth, the most important cause on the earth is salvation for the people of God. That's the most important thing there is. Man, save all the whales, all the newts and geckos you want to save, but for crying out loud, it's about the name of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about all kinds of stuff. So this is how powerful this is. Back in October, we shared this vision. I had a gentleman reach out to me. One of the things was a technological upgrade. Our, our screen right here, it's pretty cool. It looks okay, on, kind of okay online. It's actually about uh, 13 or 14 years old. We got took, like, basically sold it out of the back of a truck in Miami to us. It was bad. All right, and, it, and it's old technology. It glitches out on us. Uh, the screen, they don't match. There's all kinds of whatever. We had the opportunity to... Um, acquire a screen um, that would be 30 foot long and now we found another option and we're looking at the best option, whatever, with LED screens that go on the sides to it, all matching together, all that kind of stuff. It's about $68,000. And I got to meet with someone this week when I was praying for them and they said, you know, Pastor, we really like that vision and we want to be a part of this Go and Grow vision and we're just going to pay for all that. 
right? Right? How cool is that? How cool is that? That God can move on someone's heart and say, let me just move that vision forward. He may move on your heart when it comes to special needs kids. You may want to serve in that. You may want to to give significantly to that. Just our kids' renovation with the bathrooms and the special needs class and the playground, it's about $150,000 for the outside stuff for us to do those two ministries. But it connects in with our business ministry. The stuff we want to do in Africa, it's about $100,000. We want to do in Africa and in Nicaragua. We have an opportunity in Israel as well to train athletes and to train pastors. It's going to be amazing, guys. But it all takes money. But the beautiful thing is what you invest, the Bible says this. In fact, I'm sorry, Jesus said this. Jesus said, make friends with your earthly money because those friends will welcome you into your internal home. That's what Jesus said. You can make friends with your money. Use your money to make friends. And Jesus said, wherever you use your money to make friends, business people do this all the time. He goes, the friends you make with your money will welcome you into your eternal home, wherever that may be. You can make the wrong friends with your money. And you could go meet your friends down south. (laughs) Or you can make good friends with your money (laughs) and meet your friends in heaven. The beautiful thing is that when you give inside the church of God, it goes to salvations of people all around the world. And when you end up in heaven, you're going to have millions of friends because of your generosity in the earth. Guys, this is just the test. Our life on earth is a blip on the screen. You will live for eternity somewhere. Amen? Amen? This isn't about manipulation or guilt or anything. This is about praying and asking God, Father, what do you want me to do? And simply obey him. If God tells you, I don't want you to be part of this, by all means, please obey him. Please obey him. It does not matter to me. God's gonna move his vision forward with or without you. He's going to move it forward because he's God. And I'm just happy that I get to be a part of it. So pray about this. You can give today. You can give throughout the rest of the year. You can break this out however you want to do it and do it throughout the whole year. But I want to encourage you, take steps of faith to go beyond anything you've ever done before and allow God to use you in an incredible way. We got massive things to do for the kingdom right here at Oaks Church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you today. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I ask you to release your spirit on us. I ask you to speak to us, Father, each and every one. Father, I know there are things that people are believing for. And on this card that we have, it actually has that place too for us to be able to align with them and pray for what they're believing for in their family. God, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would ignite inside of people's hearts the passion for your future and for your vision. God, we ask you to to give us your vision and to give us your insight and to encourage us and inspire us to walk in the fullness of who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.